our next speaker, uh, who is Graham Farr. Graham's day job is Professor and Head of the Clayton School of IT at Monash University. He moonlights as a guide at Melbourne Observatory. And every 25th of January, he can be found reciting Robert Burns's poem, To a Haggis. Graham Farr. This is the story of William Tutt, who was an extraordinarily successful British codebreaker during the Second World War and an extraordinarily successful mathematician for half a century afterwards. But I'm going to frame the story in a puzzle posed 10 years before his birth. This innocent, whimsical, recreational puzzle was like the proverbial butterfly whose flapping wings uh, lead to a hurricane hundreds of miles away. The puzzle appeared in a 1907 book, here it is, called, uh, set in Chaucer's England called The Canterbury Puzzles by Henry Ernest Dudeney. It was described in terms of a decorative pattern on the lid of a casket owned by a Lady Isabel. In simple geometric terms, it, it was about dividing a square up into smaller squares all of different sizes. All? Well, not quite all, um, because one of its smaller pieces was a very thin rectangle. It was a tough puzzle, and in the book it is used to determine whether a young man is worthy of Lady Isabel's hand. But the odd piece out, the solitary small piece that wasn't square, compromised the elegance of the puzzle and raised the question of whether it's possible to divide a square entirely into smaller squares, all of different sizes. This was unsolved, and the prevailing belief was that it could not be done. It, it became known as the puzzle of squaring the square. Ten years later, in 1917, William Tutt was born. His origins were humble. He was the son of a gardener and a caretaker who worked in domestic service and they moved around a lot until settling near the border of Suffolk and Cambridgeshire when William was about five. He excelled at school and entered Trinity College, Cambridge in 1935. He majored in chemistry, but while still an undergraduate became close friends with three mathematics students. This gang of four threw themselves into mathematical problem solving and research. Over the years, they sometimes wrote their papers, and indeed some poems, under the pseudonym of Blanche Descartes. Tut was very shy and seemed to loosen up a bit behind this pseudonym. The four became interested in the problem of squaring the square, and in fact, they solved this problem, partly by discovering an unexpected link with electrical circuit theory. And they refuted the, the uh, conjecture that the square could not be squared. Their work was published in an academic journal in 1940. It had two enormous consequences, one social and one mathematical. Firstly, it got Tut noticed by people linked to the secret world of code breaking. Secondly, the theory developed opened up a whole new realm in the study of mathematical objects known as graphs or networks. Britain's wartime coding operation, a code breaking operation, was based at a mansion northwest of London called Bletchley Park. Other Cambridge mathematicians were there before Tut. Among those was Alan Turing, 
who was the subject of a previous story in this series by Carlton Cochran. Turing had worked out how to break the version of the Enigma code used by the German Navy. The naval Enigma was already so difficult that even there at Bletchley Park, the best code-breaking operation of the entire war, it had sat in the too-hard basket until the arrival of Turing, and it was a very tough problem even for him. Tut worked on a relative of Enigma known as the Lorentz cipher. This was the one used by Nazi high command, including by Hitler himself. It was much more complex than Enigma, and on top of that, the British knew very little about how it worked, whereas in the case of Enigma, they knew everything. Harder problem, less information. And this is the problem that Tut solved. It was a staggering achievement, one that almost defies belief. Tut's attack on Lorentz needed to be automated. This led to the design and construction of the Colossus machines. These are sometimes regarded as the world's first computers, although they did not have all the characteristics that the term computer is taken to embrace today. They were so successful at breaking into the encoded messages of the Nazi regime's high command that they were often able to decode the messages at the same time as the intended German recipients were reading them. This gave an incalculable advantage to the Allies in the latter half of the war, including their preparations for invading Normandy. Tut's work on Lorentz has been described as the greatest intellectual achievement of the Second World War. As a result of it, he was given a fellowship at Cambridge and went on to do his PhD there. Tut moved to Canada in 1948 after finishing his thesis, where he met and married Dorothea Mitchell in 1949. She was much more outgoing than he was and shared his love of hiking and nature. Tut was very devoted to Dorothea, so much so that he used to give her, as birthday presents, wilderness properties he had bought for them to hike in. <laughs> he spent much of his career in Canada at the University of Waterloo, which he helped build up into a powerhouse in his field. Returning to the British part of Tut's story, the second big effect of the squaring the square puzzle was to turn Tut's attention more to mathematics while he was majoring in chemistry, and in particular to the theory of graphs. Now, when we talk of graphs here, we're not thinking so much of x-axis, y-axis, plotting curves and so on. What we're thinking of now is networks. So we have things in the network and interactions between them. We might have train stations together with the rail lines between them. We might have web pages with hyperlinks between them. This is the graph we now know as the World Wide Web. We might have atoms joined by bonds. We might have people with friendships between them, and so on. Graphs are everywhere. Before Tut, though, the mathematical theory of graphs was pretty undeveloped. There was a body of theory, but quite a small one. The field was generally viewed by the mathematical community as peripheral and unsophisticated. There were some winds of change in the 1930s, really just gentle breezes, but that was the general perception. Its reputation was not helped by its connection with puzzles and games. I'll try and give a taste of Tut's major contributions to the theory of graphs. Some of these go back to his PhD thesis, a monumental work of over 400 pages with highly original results that were sometimes rediscovered by others decades later. 
In mathematics, the simplest objects to deal with are those that are straight or flat. For example, lines and planes. We'll call such things linear. In fact, much of mathematics is about taking things that are non-linear, meaning they are curved or bent rather than straight or flat, and trying to make them linear or nearly linear, or to replace them by something linear. For example, mathematicians can study curves by zooming in, so to speak, so that they look straight or close to it. Now, graphs, or networks, are much more complex objects than simple straight lines or planes. Nevertheless, it turns out that there are linear ways of looking at them. But these come with a price. You have to work in many, many dimensions, not just the three dimensions of space that we are used to. It's hard for us to imagine these extra dimensions since they represent directions that are so weird, so outside our universe, that we can't even point to them. And in these vast, multidimensional worlds, it's not so easy to tell graphs apart from other linear objects you find. This is what Tut showed how to do. He pinpointed exactly what was special about graphs. This theory brought a new depth to the subject and related this new field to older and more developed parts of mathematics. Another of his major contributions was to counting. Fundamentally, counting is how mathematics probably started and is still one of its most central activities. Tut developed a beautiful theory of counting things in graphs, leading to a wonderful object now called the Tut polynomial. This work, again, has its roots in his work on squaring the square. If you study graphs, then you'll want to look at them and display them. But we don't live in an extravagantly roomy, multidimensional space. We are stuck in three dimensions. And for display purposes, it's even worse. We usually want to draw our graphs on two-dimensional surfaces, such as paper or computer screens. Tut developed among the first methods for displaying graphs in two dimensions. Thus, a purely recreational problem, a source of mathematical fun for undergraduates, sowed seeds which grew into a major contribution to overthrowing the Nazi regime and raised a new branch of mathematics, graph theory, from infancy to adolescence. I'd like to finish with a prophetic quote from Henry Ernest Dudeney's medieval character, Sir Hugh de Fortivus, who posed this puzzle. Speaking of the way people strive for solutions to puzzles, he said, whether success do attend or do not attend our labour, it is well that we make the attempt. For it is truly good and honourable to train the mind and the wit and the fancy of man, for out of such doth issue all manner of good in ways unforeseen for them that do come after us. Thank you.